Well, good morning once again. As I said, my name is James, and it's my privilege to lead us in the study of God's Word. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 7 to 13. It's on page 1029 if you grabbed a Bible out of the seat back in front of you. When, When Pastor Ray asked me if I wanted to preach on this day, I said, yeah, absolutely, that sounds great. And then I realized that it was the Daylight Savings Sunday, and it wasn't the good Daylight Savings Sunday. And so I kind of thought to myself, this is interesting. And then I was talking to my wife about this, and she said to me, she said, James, didn't you speak last year on Daylight Savings Sunday? <laughs> and so I think Pastor Ray is many things. One of them is very smart, and uh, he, he's enjoying a nice vacation right now. But I'm, I'm very happy to be here, uh, all kidding aside. Uh, let's pray as we begin together. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity now to study your word. Father, we thank you that your word is alive and that it speaks to us. And so, Father, I pray that you just take away any distractions we might be having right now in our hearts or in our minds and help us to just focus on what you have for us here this morning. Now, we thank you for this incredible gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are in and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on you, uh, coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You've probably experienced this before, where you walk up to a group of people, and they're talking about something, and you have no idea what they're talking about. They're using phrases, they're using acronyms, they're using just words maybe that you've never heard before, and you're trying your hardest to kind of catch what they're saying, but it seems to be just going over your head. I've had that experience many times in my life, and it's not a fun experience to have. And I came across a sentence this week that was kind of like that. So I'm going to read a sentence I read this week and see if you can kind of follow along with it. There's an RFD because the CTR for your website decreased, and a QA test is required by EOD. You're either laughing because you, everyone knows what it means and I'm the silly one, or uh, how, how many people just by show of hands recognize some of the stuff in there? All right, we got some smart people here. The rest of us are like me. And, uh, and it's one of these things where if you don't know these acronyms, then it's just you, you don't know them. And uh, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if I said this sentence like this, it would be different. So this sentence essentially means someone wants to talk to you because there's a problem with your website in terms of people clicking on ads and they want to do a quality assurance test by the end of the day, right? When I say it like that, all of a sudden it's like, oh, why don't you just say so, right? 
but we sometimes use this language that people who are on the inside can understand, but those who are kind of new to the subject have a more difficult time. Right? I'll give you another example from a world I'm more familiar with. Right? I could tell you I was on a 5.10a and I was trying to send the route, but I, did a, I took a whipper doing a dyno on the lower crux. Right? And you guys are all following with that one. Right? So essentially that just means I was rock climbing and I fell doing a move on the hard part of the bottom. Right? When you, when you say it in just plain language, it becomes a lot easier to understand and respond to knowing what, what the person said. And the reason I bring this up is because I think a lot of times when we read the book of Revelation, there's so many passages, you know, so many phrases that we don't use in everyday language. There's so many phrases from the Old Testament or from this time period that sometimes we hear what's being said, but we kind of scratch our heads thinking, I don't have a clue what it means or, or how to kind of understand this. And we can see even in the text that we just read, there's all kinds of phrases that we don't normally use. Let me just kind of summarize it for us again. It's, you know, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the keys of David has opened a door before the ones with little power. One day the synagogue of Satan is going to come and bow down before their feet. So they better make sure no one seizes their crown. The one who conquers will become a pillar in the temple of God. Now, if I said those phrases to you and you're just kind of sitting there thinking, I have no idea what James is talking about, you're in the right place this morning because we're going to walk through this and unpack it so that hopefully by the time we're done today, you can hear those same words and be like, oh yeah, I get what's going on here. Because you see, Jesus has a really important message for the church in Philadelphia. He has a really important message for us here today, and it's one we need to respond to. And so let's start unpacking this, starting at the beginning and looking at what Jesus says to the church. In verse 7, he says, uh, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the king keys of David. Now, Jesus is speaking about himself here, and the question we want to ask ourselves is, why does Jesus introduce himself in this way? And the easy answer is, well, because it's true. Jesus is the Holy One. He is the true one. He holds the key of David. But then the difficult question becomes, okay, but what does that actually mean? And why does Jesus describe himself in this way to the church in Philadelphia? One of the things that we've noticed as we've looked through the book of Revelation, this is uh, message number six of seven for the different churches. In every church that Jesus speaks to, he introduces himself in a slightly different way. He uses kind of a different phrase to introduce himself. And what we found is that in each of the cases, the way that Jesus introduces himself is related to something about what the church is going through. In other words, Jesus introduces them in a way that's specifically going to speak into the situation that the church is experiencing. And I think we actually see the same thing happening here. And so what we're going to do is actually take a look at the situation the church is facing and then come back and look at how Jesus speaks into that. And so your outline says this, to understand Jesus' message, we need to look closely at the position of the church. And when I say position of the church, I, I simply mean what the church is, is experiencing, the situation that the church finds itself. And we get a sense of, of this position in verses 8 and 9, where we hear Jesus saying things like, you've, you've remained faithful to me. You haven't denied my name. We hear that they have little power, and they're dealing with a group called the synagogue of Satan. Now, again, you might be hearing those phrases and be like, well, what does that actually tell us about what the church is going through? And actually, it tells us quite a bit. It actually helps to paint quite a vivid picture, especially when we put that alongside what we also know from this time period. 
See, one of the realities of living in a place like Philadelphia in the ancient world at this time was idolatry was something that was just so prevalent in society. If you were a member of the city of Philadelphia, it was just expected and assumed that you would participate in the worship of the Roman gods and even in the worship of Roman emperors. So you would worship Caesar as Lord, Caesar as Savior. It was just something that was expected. It wasn't just some kind of fringe group of society. Right? This wasn't just kind of some, you know, something on the side here for the strange people that were kind of doing this. This was something that everybody was doing in a place like Philadelphia. It wasn't only encouraged, it was actually demanded. And there was consequences for people who didn't participate in this idolatrous aspect of society. Uh, in some cities, depending on where you live, sometimes it would just be a social thing. You know, if you didn't participate in, in the worship of the Roman gods, you would just kind of be ostracized from your social groups. You'd be looked at in a strange way by those who were part of society. You'd kind of be an outcast in that way. But in some cases, the consequences were a lot more severe than that. In some cases, you couldn't work the job that you worked if you didn't participate in idolatry. And the reason for this is, you know, you'd have these guilds of, of people of the same trade. So all the people that were uh, tent makers would, would kind of be together. All the people that were carpenters would be together. And to be part of these trade guilds, you would need to worship the God of that trade guild. And so what would happen if you refused, you couldn't participate in the occupation that you had in the city. So there's sometimes financial consequences. Sometimes people's property would be seized or their assets would be seized by the city. And then sometimes it would be even physical uh, violence against people that would fail to cooperate. And we, we saw in one of the earlier letters a person named Antipas who pays the ultimate price and lays down his life as a martyr in the early church. And so this is obviously a big problem for people that believe that there's only one God and believe that he's worthy of our exclusive worship. Uh, this was a huge problem in the first century for, for people who were Christians or people who were Jews, people who believed in one God. It was a huge problem, but there was at least a partial solution for people who belonged to the synagogue. Now, a synagogue was a place where the, the Jewish people met on a weekly basis. It was a place where they came together to read scripture, to pray together, to worship God. And at this time in history, through a series of circumstances, the Jewish people had received an exemption from, from the Romans from participating in the idolatrous aspects of society. So they said, in other words, if you belong to the synagogue, you don't have to do all this idolatry stuff. And there was a couple of kind of rules that were, that were kind of placed on these synagogues. He said, as long as you pray for us, as long as you pray to God for the city, pray to God for the emperor, and as long as you keep to yourselves and don't try to spread your faith throughout the city. So in other words, don't try making people into converts to Judaism. Keep to yourselves and you guys can enjoy this kind of exemption from participating in the idolatry that's happening in the city. And the cool thing is, for a, for a while, the Christians were also part of this exemption. Because in the, in the minds of the people of the city, they kind of saw the Christian and the Jewish synagogues as one group. And, and this makes sense if we think about it. In the book of Acts, as Paul is going on his missionary journeys, every time he enters a city, the first place that he goes to is the Jewish synagogue. And the reason for this is Paul doesn't see what he's doing as a new religion. Christians didn't see themselves as a new religion. They saw themselves as the fulfillment of what God had promised his people in the Old Testament. 
right? So it's not this new, brand new thing. It's Jesus comes as the fulfillment and, and the hope, uh, the, what the promises in the Old Testament pointed to. And so there was this really natural way in which Paul would go into the synagogues and say, the promises of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Jesus. And it's this reason that the Christians and the members of the synagogues were kind of seen as, as very, really similar groups in some ways, especially by those who were outside of the synagogues. But of course, that didn't last for, for forever. And in some cities, it was for one reason. In some cities, it was for another reason. But eventually, there was this parting of the ways between the members of the synagogue and the members of the Christian church. And again, we see in the book of Acts, when Paul comes into some cities, sometimes he'll speak just once at the synagogue and they'll kick him out and say, we don't want anything to do with you. Other times he'll speak for a few weeks, other times for a few months. And depending on the city and depending on the Christians there, there'd be kind of sometimes a longer period of time where Christians and Jews would, would meet together in the synagogues. But in Philadelphia, there seems to have been a parting of the ways and we can see at least two reasons why this would have happened. The first reason is, is probably the most obvious, that there was a disagreement about who Jesus was. Right? So you have a group on the one hand saying Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is, is God, he's the Son of God, he's the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And on the other hand, you have people saying, no, we don't believe that. At best, Jesus is a prophet, but more likely he's just a liar and he's not who he says he was. So you have this, this major divide between the synagogue in the Christian community. The second thing that you have going on is that when Christians come into a city, Christians are always spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And you see this with Paul, you see this with others. When, when they get into a city, they're going to talk to the people in the synagogue, but they're going to also go and then talk to just whoever is willing to listen to them to tell them about Jesus and how they can have a relationship with Jesus and find forgiveness of sins and, and eternal life through Jesus, and of course, this is a problem because remember, one of the rules for the synagogues was don't try to spread your faith throughout the city. And it's interesting, there's actually stories that historians tell where, Christ, or sorry, where the Jewish people make too many converts in a city, too many people start converting to Judaism, so the city officials say, okay, you're out of here. And they kick the Jewish people out of the city. So, so this is actually a real thing that happens to sometimes that when, let's say, a, a high up Roman official within the city converts to Judaism, that's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back and the Jewish people would be exiled from that city. And so you can imagine the pressure now on the synagogue where you have this group of people in your midst who are spreading the word that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and they're telling everybody about it. And this is, of course, bringing all this unwanted attention from the, uh, the people in the community, uh, bringing all this unwanted attention upon the synagogue. And so the question is, what do you do in a situation like this? What do you do if you're a synagogue leader and this is the situation you find yourself in? Well, what you do is you draw a line in the sand. And you say, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and if you want to continue proclaiming that message and you're not going to back down from that, you're on that side of the line. And you don't belong to us anymore. You're, you're not a part of us. We don't ha want anything to do with you. And when the city officials come and ask us about you, we're going to tell you, you don't belong to us. You're, you're doing your own thing. And as a synagogue leader, you go to the city officials and you say, hey, look, there's a group here called Christians. They say they're a part of us. They say, you know, they're related to what we're doing. They're not. They're, they're doing their own thing. They don't have anything to do with us. 
And if they don't want to worship the Roman gods, if they don't want to worship the emperor and pay homage to him, they deserve whatever punishment you see fit. And when you see all these factors taking place, it starts to make sense why Jesus speaks the way he does to this church. This is why Jesus says that they have little power. Because really they have no place of belonging within the city. They don't fit with just the secular government system that's promoting idolatry. And they don't fit with the synagogue that they've just been taken out of. It's hostility on both sides of them. And so there's a sense in which they just don't have a place of belonging within the city. From a worldly point of view, they have very little power, if not none. This is why Jesus also uses such strong language to talk about the synagogue being a synagogue of Satan. Now understand, this is not a phrase the synagogue would have used of themselves. Right? They, this isn't a people that are coming together to worship the devil. This isn't a synagogue that would have claimed to be a synagogue of Satan. They would have called themselves the synagogue of God. But you see, what Jesus is saying is when you seek to destroy the church, you're aligning yourself with God's greatest enemy, Satan, who would like nothing better than to see Jesus and his followers destroyed. It's, it's strong language, it really is, but it's, it's actually not the first time Jesus uses language like this. You might remember in John chapter 8 when Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are plotting to kill him and who are using lies and deceit to accomplish that, Jesus calls them sons of Satan. And he says, because Satan is a liar and a murderer, and you guys are trying to murder me through lies and deceit, you're acting just like Satan. You guys are sons of Satan, he says. And I think the idea here is that if it's true of those who try to kill Jesus through lies and deceit, it's also true for those who try to kill his church through lies and deceit. Because one of the things that scripture teaches us is that Jesus stands in incredible solidarity with his believers. Matthew 25, Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. And in in the book of Acts, when Saul, before he is converted, he's on the road to Damascus and he's been persecuting Christians and he's going to Damascus to persecute more Christians. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and he says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now at this point, Jesus has already ascended to heaven. He's no longer walking on the earth. And so we might say, Jesus, don't you mean, why are you persecuting the church? And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, you come after Jesus, brothers and sisters. You come after Jesus. And so Jesus says to the church, when you get together, or sorry, to the the synagogue, when you get together, it's not God's work that you're doing. It's the work of Satan, who would like nothing better than to see Jesus and his people destroyed. And this is why, of course, Jesus commends the church for faithfulness in the midst of opposition. This is why he commends the church for not denying his name. Because when you think about the situation that they find themselves in, when you think about the pressure they felt on on the one side from the city officials, on the other side from the synagogue, you recognize that this is the kind of situation where temptation to compromise is strongest. If there was ever a place where you would feel pressure to deny Jesus' name just to kind of survive, this would be the place. And Jesus says, you have not denied my name. You have held fast to the word that I've given to you. And Jesus commends them for it. 
And I think once we see, now that we've seen kind of the situation the church finds himself in, it actually starts to make a lot of sense why Jesus says the things he says in introducing himself. And so your outline says this, to understand Jesus' message, we need to look closely at the power of Jesus. And and this is seen clearly actually in the way Jesus identifies himself. And like I said before, there's actually connections to what Jesus says in introducing himself and the situation that the church is going through. Jesus calls himself the Holy One, the True One. And if you think about it, this is one of the debates that would have got God's people kicked out of the synagogues. The Christians said God, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Jesus is the truth of God. And the synagogue leaders would have said, no, he's not. He's a liar. He's not the Holy One of God. And Jesus here is, is affirming for the believers their decision and is saying, you are right to hold me, hold fast to my name. You're right to not deny my name because I am the true Holy One of God. And Jesus says, I have the keys of David. I have an open door that I've set before you. And I think it's really interesting thinking about the church having just had the doors of the synagogue closed in their face for Jesus to say to them, I have actually opened a door before you that no one can shut. And so the question is, what key are we talking about here? And what is the door that Jesus is setting before them? And here the Old Testament helps us out quite a bit. When you go back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 22, uh, we see almost the exact same phrase used to describe someone named Eliakim. And Eliakim has this description said about him. It says in 22, 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. See, in the original context, the, the house of David is another way of talking about the kingdom that God gave to David and to his descendants. And to have the key of the house of David, Eliakim is essentially the doorkeeper for the kingdom. Eliakim has the key. So when he opens the doors of the kingdom, people can go through those doors. When he closes the door, people are are blocked from coming through. He serves in this position in God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying what was true of Eliakim back then is more profoundly true of me. Jesus says, I'm the king of the kingdom, but I also act as the doorkeeper. He says, when I open the doors of the kingdom, no one can shut them. When I shut the doors of the kingdom, no one can open them. And Jesus says to the church, I've set that door wide open in front of you. Jesus is saying, nothing will stand in the way of your salvation as you walk into the kingdom of God that I have made a way for you to do. It's this incredible promise. Jesus is saying, no door that's been closed in your face is even worth comparing to the door that I've set open before you. And I think we can all relate to this in some way because I think we've probably all had doors that have been closed in our face. We've all stood before doors that were locked in front of us, whether we're thinking about this literally or figuratively. But even if you think about it in a literal sense, it's a terrible feeling to stand in front of a door that you want to get into, but the door is locked in front of you. Whether it's, you know, you're out in the cold and you're trying to get into your house or you're trying to get into your vehicle or, you know, you lose your keys. It's a terrible feeling to to know that you want to get into a place, you want to belong somewhere, you want to get into something, but the door is closed in front of you. And it's to a group of people that are feeling all these emotions that Jesus says, I have set before you an open door. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's calling his people to live their lives in light of the invisible realities of the present. 
It's something he does often in the book of Revelation. Revelation helps us to see that there's more going on around us than our human eyes can perceive. This is why as Christians we talk about living by faith, not only by sight. It doesn't mean that what we see isn't real. It just means there's other things that are just as real that are happening that our eyes cannot see. Jesus is saying, all you see are the closed doors in front of you. But you need to realize that even though you can't see it, I've set before you an open door that's better than all of them. And I think one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, what are the unseen realities that God is at work doing in our lives that we need to live in light of? I think one of the, one of the things that's so, so true is we always, I think, tend to, to focus on what's right, right in front of us, what's, what's visible, what's seen, what we, can, what we can see, what we can touch, what we can feel. And so often God calls us to focus on the things that are unseen, to set our, set our minds on the things that are above And so what are the invisible realities we need to to be focusing on and thinking about as we walk through life this day? Jesus helps his church to see those things. And and Jesus does two things here. He, he first of all, helps us to see in, in light of the invisible realities of the present. But he also calls the church to walk in light of his promises for the future. And your outline says this, to understand Jesus' message, we need to look closely at the promises of Jesus. And one of the amazing things about the church in Philadelphia is usually at this point in the, in the message, Jesus would start his rebuke of the church, right? So usually Jesus would, would say, I know your works. This is what you're doing well, but here's where you need to repent. Here's where you need to improve. Here's where you need to change something. In Philadelphia, Jesus doesn't give that word of correction. He says, I see what you're doing. You're, you're faithfully enduring. You're, you're not denying my name. And then he just goes on to the promises for the people of Philadelphia. In other words, he's saying, I see that you've been faithful. Let me give you these promises and assurance for the future so that you continue to remain faithful. This is one of the only two churches that doesn't receive a word of rebuke. And I think there's something there for us to learn from. Jesus gives this promise in verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this might seem like a strange thing for Jesus to say, but once again, the Old Testament actually helps us out quite a bit here. Because the phrases that Jesus used actually come straight from the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, again, in chapter 43, God tells his people, Israel, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. A little bit later in chapter 60, verse 14, he adds, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. And there's an irony at place here because the irony is that the members of the synagogue who read these passages in Isaiah, they would have thought that God was speaking about them. They would have looked forward to the day that when, when all the nations would bow down before their feet. And here Jesus is kind of flipping that promise around. He's saying, one day the synagogue of Satan will come and bow down before the feet of the church. My Bible scholar Craig Keener helps us here. He says, the biblical prophets had promised God's people that Gentiles would one day bow down to them. But here unbelieving Jews joined the unbelieving Gentiles and bowing down before the faithful believers. You see, here it's not about ethnicity, it's about belief in Jesus that that determines which side of this promise you're on. 
And you can imagine how comforting this would be to the church with little power, struggling in the midst of this hostile environment to hear these words of Jesus. To know that they one day would be vindicated before those who are persecuting them. That's this incredible promise. And Jesus continues in verse 10 with another one. He says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, believe it or not, this verse has actually become one that's fairly controversial in the book of Revelation. And it's a verse that when, the com- when you read commentaries, you kind of get to verse 8, and there's a couple paragraphs written about it. You get to verse 9, a couple of paragraphs. You get to verse 10, and all of a sudden you got a couple pages, at least usually, talking about this verse. And the reason for that is because this verse has become kind of the center of a conversation about what's called the rapture, or rapture theology. Uh, on the one hand, you have some people that are writing pages and pages saying, you know, this is why this verse is talking about the rapture. And on the other hand, you have people are writing pages and pages saying, this is why this verse is not talking about the rapture. Now, to, to kind of simplify this or explain it, what rapture theology is talking about is this idea that God's going to come and rapture the church, kind of catch the church up to heaven before the majority of the events in Revelation take place. It's this idea that before the great tribulation, God's going to come and rapture away the church before these events happen. And if you think about, you know, you've probably seen a movie or a TV show uh, with this idea, right? So it's this idea that there's a plane flying through the sky. All of a sudden, the pilot and half the passengers are gone, and the rest of the plane's left behind to kind of wonder what's, what's happening next. Uh, is this idea that there's cars driving on the roads, all of a sudden all the Christian drivers are gone and there's accidents happening all over the place and, and God's rapturing up the church before the great tribulation that we read about in Revelation. And so there's this big debate that, that rages on here and, and the question is, in, in which way is God going to keep his followers from the hour of trial that is coming? Is it by rapturing them away to heaven or is it through some other means? And I think what's going on here, especially in this verse, but I think in Revelation, I, I don't think that this idea of a, of, of a great rapture like we, we think about in Hollywood is what's, what's going on. And before I tell you why, I want to tell you what I think rapture theology gets right. So I think that the strength of, of what the rapture theology people teach is that God does make a distinction in the book of Revelation between his followers and the rest of the unbelieving world. In other words, there is a distinction made in the book of Revelation. Not everyone has the same experience when it comes to the end times. Uh, there, there's a, a point of following Jesus, actually. There's a, there's a benefit of that because, of course, we know that when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus takes the punishment that your sin deserves on the cross, and he takes those punishments in our place so that we don't have to experience God's wrath. And so we know for sure that in the book of Revelation, God's wrath is not poured out on his people. And so that's one thing we need to keep in mind. God makes that distinction. And so the question, that's, or the, the, the kind of thought process that some people have is, well, that must mean that God raptures his church away before the great hour of trial that is coming, before the tribulation comes. And I actually don't think that's the way we're supposed to look at it for a couple of reasons. First is this, there are some examples in the book of Revelation of believers who are in heaven who are kind of looking down on things on earth that are happening. But when you read about those believers, it's made clear that they got to heaven not by being raptured away before things got difficult, 
They got to heaven by laying down their lives as martyrs, by faithfully suffering and dying at the hands of persecutors for the sake of their testimony about Jesus. And one of the things that you also read in the book of Revelation is that when you talk about tribulation, tribulation shows up right at the beginning of the book, actually. And if you just search the word tribulation, you'll find that it's used most often when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He's saying, you're already going through tribulation. And so the question is, how do, we, how do we hold these two things together? How do we, on the one hand, say that the church doesn't experience God's wrath, but on the other hand, it seems like they're going through tribulation? How do those fit together? And I think to understand this, it's important for us to recognize that tribulation and wrath are two different things. When the book of Revelation talks about tribulation, it's talking about what God's people experience when the values of the kingdom of God clash with the values of this present evil age. And God's people experience persecution and trials and hardship because of that. Actually, if you go to John chapter, or sorry, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John introduces himself as your brother and partner in three things. He says, I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And it might seem like a little bit of a, an odd, like three things to put together. Tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance, but they actually go together really well. And the reason for that is God's people experience tribulation at the hands of a world that's opposed to God's kingdom and God's kingdom values. And so therefore, the call to God's people is patient endurance in the midst of that tribulation. And I think what you see throughout the rest of Revelation is God's people don't experience God's wrath, but they surely do experience tribulation. And one of the things that really helped me to think about this or just kind of understand this better was thinking about the experience of God's people in the Exodus. And the reason for this is when you read Revelation, a lot of the language in Revelation points back to the Exodus and especially the plagues that God pours out on Egypt when God's people are, are, are living in Egypt as slaves. So you remember God's people are slaves in Egypt. God sends the plagues and then eventually rescues his people in this great Exodus event. And one of the things that's interesting in the book of Exodus is that as God's pouring out the plagues on the land of Egypt, God makes a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. Uh, we see this especially explicitly in the later plagues where God makes this distinction. There's a good example in Exodus chapter 8, verse 22 to 23. After announcing the plague of the flies, God says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. And what we see then in the book of Exodus is that as God pours out these plagues on Egypt, God's people don't experience the plagues in the same way as the rest of the Egyptians. There's this distinction that God makes. And I think we see this most clearly in the final plague, the plague of the firstborn son being killed. God tells his people, take a lamb and slaughter it and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house. And whichever house has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, God, the angel of God passes over that house and that house is spared from that plague. You see, God makes a distinction based on the blood of the lamb so that those who are covered in the blood of the lamb don't experience God's wrath. 
Uh, Bible teacher Marty Cooley says it this way, God accomplishes his mighty rescue by pouring out his wrath on the oppressor nation while the people of God are still suffering under an evil ruler. And so you might ask God's people in the book of Exodus, did you experience the wrath of God in the final plague? They'd say, absolutely not. God passed over our houses. Then you'd ask them, but did you experience tribulation at that time? And they'd say, absolutely we did. We were slaves in Egypt and every time the plagues got worse, our situation got worse because Pharaoh was more and more ruthless to us the more and more God poured out judgment upon him. And so you had on the one hand God's judgment in Egypt and you had God's people experiencing tribulation until the day when God finally had this dramatic rescue of his people. And I think we see the same thing happening in the book of Revelation. God makes a distinction based on the blood of the lamb so that those covered in the blood of the lamb don't experience God's wrath. But they still experience the tribulation that comes living in this world that is opposed to God and opposed to the kingdom values. And we see in this way, Jesus keeps this church from the hour of trial. He makes a distinction based on the blood of the lamb so that they don't experience God's wrath. And they're kept spiritually to remain faithful in the midst of everything that they're facing, in the midst of all the trials that they're going through. It reminds me a lot of John chapter 17, verse 15, where Jesus prays to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I think this is why Jesus and John talk so much about patient endurance. Right? You don't need patient endurance if your expectation is the moment things get difficult, God's going to snap you out of there. Uh, but you need patient endurance if you expect tribulation to come and you, and you need to remain faithful in the midst of it. That's right. I think it's important to talk about this because it has implications for the way we think about trials and, and, and difficulties that come in our lives, particularly those that come from being followers of Jesus. And the question is, what is our attitude when difficult time comes? Or what is our attitude when God puts us through trials? Is our first response to say, God, if you love me, you would take this thing away from me. Or God, just rescue me from this. Take this away. Don't let me go through this. And I'm not saying it's wrong to ask God to take difficulties out of our lives. It's not wrong to pray those kinds of prayers. Jesus himself in the garden prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then Jesus also prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done. It's not wrong to ask God to remove the trials that we're going through, remove the trials that our brothers and sisters are facing. As long as we're also praying, God, would you keep us faithful in the midst of these trials? Would you help us to overcome? Jesus tells us, if it's not one thing, it will be the other. And he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Uh, But take heart, I have overcome. I have conquered the world. Jesus has conquered. He calls us to do the same. Verse 11 to 13. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. These are amazing promises for those who conquer in Jesus name through patient endurance. This church that has this shaky foundation, this church that has no power. God says, I'm going to make you a pillar in God's temple. It's this picture of security and firmness for all of eternity. 
And Jesus says, you'll receive three new names. The name of my Father, which means you belong to God. The name of the city of God, which means you're citizens of New Jerusalem. And Jesus' own name, which means we have an eternal relationship with him. The church will go from little power and shaky foundation to ultimate security forever in God's presence. And so let us also be those who, through patient endurance, conquer by remaining faithful no matter what life throws at us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you're with us and that you promise to keep us in the midst of whatever comes our way. Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, God, we just pray that you go with us this week, whatever we're facing. We pray that you would not only rescue us from our trials, but keep us faithful in the midst of them. Help us to walk with you in everything we do and say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.